0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang.
2: Chiang in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up in the next hour from largest shareholder to board member. How Elon Musk's sudden moves at Twitter could raise alarm at the SEC. We will have all the details. Plus, Uber adds flights, trains, even hotels to a pilot program in its super app push. We'll tell you how CEO Dara Khosrowshahi wants to expand beyond rides and food delivery. And Bitcoin 2022 is now underway in Miami. We will bring you the latest from the crypto conference and catch up with some of the attendees later this hour. The big story in tech, of course, Elon Musk joining the board of Twitter 24 hours after his 9.2% stake in the company was disclosed. What does this mean for the platform's future? I want to dig deeper into this with Daphne Keller, director of the Program on Platform Regulation at the Stanford Cyber Policy Center. Daphne, great to have you back with us. So it's been a whirlwind 72 hours and just the last 24 hours. Musk has now filed uh, to become an active investor in Twitter, not just a passive investor, meaning that he will advocate for changes. What influence do you think Musk will have on the platform? How will Twitter change as a result of his board membership?
1: Well, I don't think anyone knows. And, you know, there there are a lot of predictions people could make. But one thing that's particularly interesting is the possibility that he will join Jack Dorsey and current CEO Agarwal in promoting decentralized models, in you know, promoting ways to allow third parties to come in and offer different content moderation systems on top of Twitter or different content ranking systems, which would be a really important shift if it happened.
2: So Twitter's Blue Sky Project, which is this push for an open, decentralized standard for social media that is funded by Twitter, you know, is this something that you think Musk could or would take on, and, you know, what specifically would you be looking to change?
1: Well, so the the upside of the project is that it would let Twitter users pick the speech rules they want to live under. You know, they could sign up for a Disney flavor or a church affiliated or Black Lives Matter affiliated flavor of the ranking or of the rules on harassment or violence or nudity. So all of these things would allow Twitter to step back from being the one gatekeeper that decides the speech rules and bring in lots of different options for users. So you can see Musk, who has talked about you know open sourcing the algorithms and and is broadly interested in decentralization liking that Um, on the other hand you can see him liking consolidated control and preferring a world where Twitter does set the rules so I think you know it's it's a wait and see situation for sure could this have repercussions for other
2: social platforms like Facebook
1: sure Uh, In a way, you can see Project Blue Sky, which is about decentralizing rules, bringing in more decision makers and more options for users as like a counterpart of Facebook's oversight board. In, in both cases, it's platforms saying, we're uneasy being the deciders, especially on issues that divide the public so much that somebody's going to be angry no matter what we do. And so we would like to hand that role to someone else. Facebook's answer was, keep it extremely centralized, fund it with Facebook money and build the oversight board to decide hard cases. And Twitter's answer, answer with blue sky potentially is to say, Let's decentralize this. Let's put lots of different people in charge and sort of devolve control to the users so they can choose what they want and move the costs, incidentally, of all this content moderation out onto other competitors so it's not sitting with Twitter where it's very expensive and very difficult as part of their business right now.
2: Now, the biggest, perhaps most existential question is what could this mean for free speech on Twitter? And in general, take a listen to uh, Professor Jennifer Greigel from Syracuse University when I asked her how this could change how Twitter handles free speech.
3: This really isn't about free speech. If anything, Twitter has just become a little bit more about Elon's speech. (laughs) He just bought a large portion of this company and gets to kind of steer What happens there now if anything he's figured out that this is a powerful platform maybe he took some notes from mark zuckerberg and others that uh you need to have some influence over a platform
4: daphne do you think this is
2: more about elon's speech and 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 how could this influence future moderation efforts at twitter
1: well it would be more about elon's speech if we stay in the world of twitter being a single centralized point of control uh, over the rules that are imposed on users and their speech. Uh, so if we don't go in this decentralized direction that we've been talking about and that Jack Dorsey has been talking about for a few years, um, and, and instead there's just one decider in the middle, then obviously Elon Musk's role there is is really important. Um, but I don't think we should foresee a world where Twitter becomes you know, a free speech mosh pit free-for-all because they're not going to make money that way. You know, if, if you get onto Twitter and you can't help seeing a bunch of racist comments or bullying or spam or, you know, all of these things that users don't like and that advertisers don't like, um, that that is not a way to retain users or, or to be profitable. So I don't think we should imagine a world where it's anything goes on Twitter. It's, you know, at most a world where Twitter still imposes its own rules, but they're more influenced by Elon Musk, but possibly this really interesting other direction where Twitter steps back and gives users a choice. You know, you can choose to live under Twitter's rules or you can choose to live under some other rules.
2: Which brings me to the question of Donald Trump. And could this open the door to President, former President Trump coming back to Twitter after being permanently banned? I've asked Ned Siegel, the CFO, this question several times over the last year. Is there a path uh, for Trump to come back? Take a listen to what he's had to say.
5: Once somebody is removed from Twitter, uh, there isn't a path for them to come back. Uh, And that's true for public officials. It's true for anybody else who uses the service as well.
2: Now, Trump, in a lawsuit against Twitter back in January, said Twitter has increasingly engaged in impermissible censorship. The immediacy of its threat to users and potentially every citizen's right to free speech cannot be... Overstated, Twitter censorship results in a chilling effect on our nation's pressing political, medical, social, and cultural discussions. Does former President Trump have a point? And do you see Elon Musk coming back? Uh, you know, Could they reopen this question of whether he should be on the platform?
1: Well, former President Trump does not have a legal point. As a legal argument, this lawsuit is nonsense because private platforms don't owe you First Amendment protection the way that the government does. And courts have said this over and over again in cases very much like this Trump lawsuit. Um, But as a matter of public policy and things that we care about, uh, is it a problem that there are a small handful of giant companies that really have a a chokehold over what speech and information we can share and see? Yes. You know, of course people are worried about that. And so, you know, I can imagine a future where Twitter's version of its content moderation continues to have former President Trump banned for life, but there are alternatives, um, you know, a lens on Twitter offered by some competitor that does allow him to come back and then users can choose which of those universes they want to live in.
2: Interesting. So you think that Twitter could find a middle ground here with when it comes to President Trump?
1: Well, so imagine, You know, their users can choose from 50 different flavors of competing content moderation services built on top of Twitter. one version of that is an entirely federated system, meaning uh, there is no centralized control, kind of like Mastodon now. And so, it, you know, in that version, anyone can build a system where President Trump does come back. And it's just a question of whether users want to sign up for that. I think what's more plausible as a future development with Project Blue Sky is a sort of hub and spoke model where. Twitter does take some things down at the center, like things that are illegal or honoring DMCA notices. Um, And then what's left goes out to, you know, the competing offerers of content moderation services and and they can decide among, among those things that are left. So more like how Reddit does some centralized content moderation, but then most of the decisions are made by different subreddits, you know, applying their own different policies. You know, so Twitter could choose to say, you know, we're going to take down all the illegal stuff at the center so no one can see it. And also some things violate our own policies so badly that we're also going to keep that down permanently for all of the you know, competing flavors of content moderation. But I just think that would be a wise step.
2: 31, 51 flavors. We'll see if Twitter moves in that direction. Daphne Keller, director of the program and platform regulation at the Stanford Cyber Policy Center. Thank you. Well, Elon Musk's swift ascent from Twitter shareholder to board member could... Catch the eye of the SEC. This at a time when the commission is demanding more transparency from big investors and ratcheting up fines for breaking rules. Here to talk about that and more, Bloomberg's Matt Robinson, who covers the SEC for us. So, Matt, is there any indication that the SEC is looking at this yet?
0: Not yet, but the SEC is looking at Elon Musk and his brother for uh, insider trading or potential insider trading issues about a share sale last fall. So, uh, you know, as we know, the SEC and Elon Musk go, go back, you know, quite a few years now from 2018 with his uh, infamous funding secured tweet and the uh, subsequent uh, penalty and settlement, which uh, limits his ability to talk about uh, his company uh, on the platform.
2: Now, Elon Musk initially filed to be a passive investor. We know now in the last 24 hours he's changed that to become an active investor. We also know he started buying shares starting back... In January, the CEO of Twitter, Parag Agrawal, said that they had actually been talking for weeks. Now, perhaps it could actually be months. What's significant about that to you when it comes to the interest of the SEC?
0: So those are the, so the two different filings that um, you know big investors have to disclose. Um, you know, we have a 13G, which is someone who's taking a passive stake, someone who, who doesn't have any interest in seeking any sort of um, business, you know, plans or changes, and then the 13D, which is what he filed yesterday. So there is room for an, uh for an investor to go from a 13g which is the you know um, the passive side to an activist side so um, there are so so by updating that that's that's fine the issue that Elon Musk may, may find himself into is that he um, you know, as soon as you hit 5%, you have to disclose within 10 calendar days and it looks like he may have uh, missed that window. So that is sort of a technical um, violation that he could see, see some issues, but the SEC is generally, they don't really bring those cases unless it's kind of repeated failures.
2: How fast could we see the sec move on with move on move on this
0: oh well the, you, you know, know they, it's, it's
2: obviously just happened i mean if it has if they haven't you know started an, an investigation in a couple of weeks you know is it smooth sailing
0: it's, it certainly can be quick i mean um if you're uh, back in 2018 you know the, if i remember correctly it was like early august that he he brought the funding secured and at the end of september the sec sued elon musk so i mean if there's um you know the facts and and the and certainly the motivation there from the sec if they feel like this is an important case to bring, that you know, this is going to show to, to Musk and to other investors that you, know, you have to take these sorts of disclosure rules um, seriously and promptly.
2: All right. Bloomberg's Matt Robinson, who covers the SEC for us. Thank you. Coming up, Dara Shahi is pushing Uber closer to becoming the go-to travel app, adding long-distance travel like planes, trains, hotels. Will it work? Could Uber be the next super app we will explore
6: next? This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop.
2: Let's get to Uber's continued push to become a super app. The ride-hailing company planning to launch a pilot project in the UK that'll integrate offers from travel partners. That means customers will soon be able to book long distance travel on planes, trains, buses even hotels. Bloomberg's Jackie Davalos has more. So how exactly will this work, Jackie, from a customer's perspective? It's going to be a one-stop shop for transportation. Now,
7: while we were able to get a cab to the airport, now when you're at the airport, you know, you can hail uh, or book the next train ride or your bus from whatever city you're going to. It's really going to become a much more comprehensive travel hub. Now, for Uber, this is the next step in their super app strategy. This is not something that is completely new. They've telegraphed this even, you know, back in 2018, Dar Khazr Shahi had this big idea that it could become a, a super app. And when you think about it, it's not a concept that is very well known to Westerners uh, in particular, but in Asia, it's huge. Uh, Uber has a stake in Grab, which is one of the biggest players and examples of a super app where you can access payment. You can hail a ride. You can get food delivery all in one. So this is a major step, really jump-starting those efforts for Uber.
2: Now, you and I just spent time with Dara Shahi at Shop Talk a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about this vision to deliver the future of retail, not just food. Take a listen to what he had to say when I asked specifically about these Super App Ambitions.
0: So what we're doing essentially is building the largest local commerce and transportation platform on earth. Um, the users, riders, consumers get the ease of essentially being able to go and uh, go anywhere, get anything, same ID, same payments, etc. We know the locations that you like to go or restaurants that you love.
2: Jackie, it all sounds good, but how will this or could this help Uber's bottom line? Or could it hurt? Well when you think about this particular long distance
7: uh, travel move, the way it's going to be done is by using online travel aggregators. So think of an Expedia or a booking. They're the ones that are actually booking the ticket, but Uber is taking a cut out of that sale. It's a really high margin type of strategy where, you know, they're not the ones having the having to get the plane or the train, the actual hardware. What they're doing is just facilitating this, this sale for customers. that are already very engaged on their app. When you think about the different ways that Uber can tap people's lives, you know, you can uh, book a restaurant, take a ride to the restaurant, pay for the meal. Uh, The opportunity for growth
2: is very, very significant. So what does this mean for competition, you know, especially given this is launching in the UK, obviously there are big travel competitors like Expedia, Bookings, you know, what does this mean for the rest of the industry? For some of its direct competitors, let's
7: take, uh, you know, Rideshare, Lyft, for example. If this kind of uh, long-distance rollout were to reach North America, it would be uh, a huge blow for Lyft, who doesn't have the kind of uh, cushion that Uber has uh, with its food delivery business. And also, when you think about some of the marketplaces that are also vying to keep their customers on their apps longer, whether it's DoorDash or Instacart, this is going to be a significant change challenge, especially if Uber's making it easy to do all of the things in the app, whether it's, you know, a ride or a meal, convenience items, retail. Uh, so I think it's rapid delivery. It's going to really, um, you know, up the ante for marketplaces and rideshare
2: rivals uh, to, to find ways to keep customers on the app. All right. We'll be watching how this plays out. Bloomberg's Jackie Davalos. Thank you. She is one of the most popular stars on Twitch, with more than a million followers. Meet Iron Mouse. She not only plays some of the most popular video games on the streaming site, but also sings karaoke and cracks jokes to her many followers. For more on the rise of Iron Mouse and other VTubers, I'm joined by Bloomberg's Cecilia Donastasio, who covers the gaming industry for us. So, who is Iron Mouse and why has she gotten so
3: popular? Iron Mouse is an anonymous woman, a Puerto Rican woman, who became very popular on twitch and on youtube for live streaming herself as a virtual anime character through motion capture technology iron mouse kind of moves in front of a camera and that gets fed through animation software and that is what you see on screen you see a vtuber or virtual youtuber so what do we know about the woman behind this character we don't know anything about the woman behind this character but um, she keeps herself anonymous just to protect for her own safety. So talk
2: to us about the rise of VTubers and who else is falling into the popular
3: category. There are 17,000 VTubers right now. Iron Mouse broke records recently, becoming the most subscribed to woman on Twitch and the most popular VTuber on Twitch last month. But VTubing has become a sensation over the last couple of years with an over 467% increase between 2020 and 2021. And fans love it. They love the feeling of interacting live with an anime character um, or a person kind of presenting themselves as an anime character.
2: You know, obviously we've talked a lot about the rise of YouTubers and the kind of money they
3: can make. I mean, is there a lot of money to be made here? Are there careers to be made here? For a select few, there is money to be made and there are careers to be had. There are um, some larger brands who have invested in VTubers, particularly in Japanese VTubers. Companies like Sega have been involved um, in sort of helping sponsor companies. The first VTuber, Kazuna AI, um, has done enormous deals with even like the Japanese tourism agency. Um, but generally speaking, it is a competitive field right now and only the top people with the best technology you're going to succeed on the level that iron mouse has all right cecilia
2: danastasio fascinating we'll have to try to learn more details about um, iron mouse thank you for sharing that coming up they just raised nearly two billion dollars looking to bet big on tech my exclusive conversation with lead edge capitals mitchell green up next
6: what if everyone at work were an expert communicator
2: Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. What goes up must come down, right? My next guest thinks tech valuations have gotten ahead of themselves and has launched a new fund to put new money to work in this rapidly changing macro environment. Joining me now for more, founding partner of Lead Edge Capital, Mitchell Green. Mitch, great to have you back with us. So how do you think valuations are hanging right now? Are they too high and what's next?
5: Yeah. Thanks, Emily. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, Are we talking public or private company valuations? Both. Both. Um, So look, I mean, anybody watching the markets has obviously seen that, especially in the software internet world. um, You know, public valuations have come down, you know, fairly dramatically. Um, You wouldn't know it in the indices, given just how much of the indices is weighted towards like you know the large cap companies like Apple and. know, um, you know, Microsoft and Facebook and Google and stuff like that. But but underneath those, you know, companies like Snowflake or Toast or, you know, Okta or, you know, these companies have come down hugely dramatically and, you know, public companies tend to, you know, lead private company valuations and I think you will start to see, and we're starting to see private company valuations decline. you, you'd had a lot of crossover hedge funds that had entered, that had been into the space over the last five years, and you know we're looking at some large deals right now that you know, six months ago it would have been kind of swarmed. These are you know 60000000 million dollar revenue companies that would have been swarmed by uh, crossover public investors, and I think in this deal there's like one looking at it. So it should be like a good time to invest. Depressed valuations and less competition should be a good time to you know uh, deploy money.
2: Right. So, how do you plan to put this new one point nine five billion dollars to work?
5: Yeah. So, um, same way we have been um, for many, many years. You know, we deployed our last fund, um, a nine hundred fifty million dollar fund, in like fifteen months. And so, you know, we want this fund to take you know two and a half to three years now two and a half years three year to three years to invest. And so um, continuing to do what we do, you know, we're primarily uh, Western European, uh, you know, um, uh, North American investors. We've done some stuff in Asia over the years, companies like Ant or ByteDance or Alibaba Group we were early investors in, but primarily US and Western European and Israeli based software and internet companies and fintech companies.
2: Uh, so, you know, when you, when you look at valuations, uh, are, are you changing your own bar in terms of what is reasonable? And do you think more broadly we're just going to see a lot of air get let out of the balloon?
5: Yeah, so look, since we um, – our biggest mistakes, to be clear, over the last five to ten years was um, not predicting multiple expansion – um, had we, we would have made our LPS billions of dollars more than we've made. We, we've done really well, but we would have made a lot more. Um, and you know, look, the way we, the way we, model, the way we make investments is we build five-year models, and this is this is no different today than it was five years ago. And we slap a reasonable, you know, earnings or revenue multiple on them and, and discount back. Um, there were a bunch of deals getting done over the last. 12, you know, starting kind of like there were a bunch of deals that got done in 2021 that we could not figure out how people were underwriting these, these, these valuations at, was when we stuck in our exit multiples, which we thought were reasonable based on historical averages, like we just couldn't get there at all. Um, and this is, we just, you know, we kind of use a historical average multiple to exit stuff and we'll continue to do that. And so I think what's interesting is in fund five, we just raised fund six, um, we had only done one or two deals in the Bay area. And a lot of our deals were just in like random other places around the world. Um, you know, Ann Arbor, Michigan was one of our biggest investments in fund five. Uh, we just thought you got better valuations there. It's not cause we don't like stuff on the coast. I think in fund six, you will see us do more stuff on the coasts just because I think valuations are getting to be more reasonable.
4: Now, online
2: payments company Fast just closed shop yesterday saying they simply ran out of money. Are we going to see this happen more often?
5: I'm I'm sure you will. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yes, I'm sure you will. We have this one criteria that is super important to us called um, capital efficiency. And it's like, our version of return on equity it's like the very right dumb person in our view is return on equity uh because it's not like based in scientific fact but what it is 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 it are your revenues today are your recurring revenues today or your annual recurring revenue arr greater or equal to the amount of money you've burned since day one of the business now maybe you've like raised a bunch of money but if it's sitting in the bank don't like blame the entrepreneur so in other words the world is littered with like $30 million revenue companies growing fast that have burned like $100 million to get there, but what we want to find the companies that are like $30 million of revenue that have burned like $10 million to get there because those are companies that you know are just not going to like fall off a cliff if times get tough. Um, they also just, dem- if you can grow fast and not burn much money, you've got a good business So it's just like a simple, like a check that in in every deal that we invest in, we we rate it: is it capital efficient or not? Now, not all the companies we've invested in are, but the vast majority are. It just keeps. What are your
2: thoughts? What are your thoughts on the crypto market? Where do you see hype, and where do you see opportunity?
5: Uh, I think it's a giant bubble. Um, But I, we, um, to be completely fair, we have not. we have not, we've looked at some of this stuff in crypto more on like the picks and shovels businesses, like a business called Chain Analysis we looked at early. We're not investors. Benchmark was an early investor. We so where do you
2: see the giant bubble?
5: I don't know if the right price for Bitcoin is 60,000, 70,000, 20,000 or 500. I just know this. When I have a lot of random friends who know nothing about investing, telling me it's easy to make money in crypto. Like that smells bubble to me. I also, um, one of my buddies who's been a really early investor in crypto and made a lot of money on it, and somebody I guess I should have I listened to, um, said he's convinced that like every fraudster in the world is now in the crypto world. Like, but, like this stuff is real. I, and, and by the way, if you believe that like crypto, crypto is the next like internet. Then you might see a drawdown of ninety percent or eighty percent. But this stuff is real. Like I, I just think a lot of this stuff is overhyped and like is not justified at all in, um, in you know in fundamental, fundamental investing. But I do think it's real. I do think it's here to stay. One really interesting thing about crypto is it's like too like, it's really volatile. So I was reading recently, I, I what I saw that like Tesla was enabling you at one point to be able to like pay for Teslas and Bitcoin. Well, I thought that was like super cool. You could take a dot, you could take a currency and use it for an exchange of goods or services. The problem is, is like, and the reason they got rid of it and why I think you haven't seen Amazon and other big retailers start to accept it is these currencies are just too volatile. Like I think there's been like something like 10 days where Bitcoin has moved like 10% in a day, like the biggest U.S. dollar move ever, like a U.S. dollar-euro move ever, has been like 1.5%, and it's happened like five times. So these things are just too volatile right now, but I do think they're real.
2: Yeah. All right. Interesting uh, little monologue there. Rachel Green, founding partner at Lead Edge Capital. Some strong opinions. We'll see how you put your money to work. Thank you. Meantime, billionaire crypto investor Michael Novogratz says that once the Fed takes a pause, Bitcoin could take off again. Hmm. Or, in his words, Bitcoin goes to the moon. Novogratz leads Galaxy Digital Holdings. At the Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami, Novogratz reiterated a call that Bitcoin will eventually hit a price of $1 million. It was trading today at a little over $44,000.
7: Truly understands the value of cryptocurrency, whether it be, uh, you know, Bitcoin or Dogecoin. Uh, he has, an, he knows the value of open source networks. So what I think is going to be interesting is is he going to bring these elements of the crypto world, these anti-censorship elements, the open source elements, and allow for a way for new people to come in and maybe import their own algorithm.
2: Time now for our crypto report. That was the Blockchain Association's Kristen Smith saying it's a good thing for Twitter that Elon Musk is now on board this day three now of this developing story. And I want to dig into it all with our crypto contributor, Shanali Bostic. Shanali, I would love to hear how the crypto community is digesting Elon Musk joining the board of Twitter, given he's such, he's been such a loud figure in the crypto community. There's a huge crypto community on Twitter and the future of Twitter could be
4: more decentralized. Yeah, it was interesting to hear Kristen Smith talk about it from the decentralized social network standpoint, because you could also, Emily, think about it from a commerce standpoint. Remember, Twitter has already started to integrate pieces of the Lightning Network here to be able to make some payments possible via the platform through the Lightning Network, which is obviously a very popular project when it comes to uh, Bitcoin and payment transfers. But the idea of decentralizing social media, there are a lot of projects out there that people try to use when it comes to media and decentralization but they're still in early days now the question is can twitter play a bigger role in this space All
2: right, Chanel, stay with us. I want to bring in our next guest who is joining us live from the Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami, Pascal Gauthier, CEO and chairman of the crypto security startup Ledger. Before we dig in, Pascal, I'd love for you to give us a flavor of Bitcoin 2022 this year. Of course, it was big last year. Is it even bigger this year? And what are people talking about?
8: Yeah, this year is very intense. Last year, sadly, I couldn't come because I'm European and so I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to travel to the U.S. But what I know from what people tell me is like this year is even more intense than last year. I think, you know, we are post-pandemic and so, you know, people are very very happy to meet. Like I'm meeting with people that I've only met online so far and right now, you know, it's a very happy moment and, uh, and you can see that it's 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 really going very strong with a lot of support from you know all communities that are going towards bitcoin so it's a great moment for bitcoin
2: ledger is known for its crypto hardware wallets and you're out with a new one how is this new better improved
8: well it's just that you know crypto currencies are evolving and so with the evolution of the protocols and the evolution of like you know the application that sits on top of protocols you just need new hardware to enhance the experience and you know the ledger nano s plus is is just a result of that like you need more, no, you need more space you know you need more usability and so this is what's happening so it's a product that was long overdue it's out now in the market and there will be many more products coming for Ledger in the future.
4: You know, there have been a lot more instances of scams and hacks in the NFT and in the DeFi space. How is Ledger attacking, uh, attacking what's happening here? And can you keep up with the technology that hackers are using to to get into new spaces?
8: Yes, of course. I mean, you know, hackers are always hacking in exactly the same way. You know, the problem is education in the space. And, you know, people are understanding that they need hardware security security to secure their assets. You know, this is the fundamental truth of cryptocurrencies, NFT. I mean, anything that has a private key needs hardware security. And so people need to learn. And usually, you know, sometimes they learn the hard way. And we're sorry for that. But when it comes to NFT, you know, NFT is treated as a first-class citizen on all ledger products. And right now, depending on the NFT collection, you get between 25 and 40 percent of all NFTs that are already secured by ledger. So I think we're doing our job and, you know, the communities are responding well and using our product to secure themselves.
4: What do you think about competition in the space? Also, you know, there's news of Jack Dorsey in the block working on hardware wallets. Are you nervous about that and how does it change the competition when it comes to the wallet space?
8: Well first I think competition is always welcome you know it means that there is a space and it means that there is something there so you know ledger is a is a very strong company and there are a few hardware wallet manufacturers in the world but you know the fact that Jack dorsey and and block are taking a a take like this is good uh we 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 know them we talk to them and you know I feel that what they're doing is actually you know something that is you know Bitcoin mainly and within the realm of what block and square are doing you know i think that ledger is a much more holistic approach like you know we are a hardware wallet manufacturer we cater for every community we're not bitcoin only you know of course we're very strong at bitcoin but we are multi-chain and i think the future is to hide away that complexity for users like they shouldn't worry so much about the change but they should worry about you know manufacturers like us worry about the experience in the future so we are very focused on the journey of the user and making sure that we support every community in crypto and I think that's where we're very different from everyone else
2: Well, speaking of communities in crypto, there's a big one on Twitter, and since we mentioned Jack Dorsey, I'm curious what you think about Elon Musk joining the board of Twitter, given his thoughts on decentralization and his own sort of role in the crypto community. How does this strike you?
8: You know, where, I, where it strikes me the most is I think, you know, I, I followed all of this and I think Elon Musk is a beautiful troll and I think he's amazing. And so I think he's taking a stance at freedom. I think, you know, freedom is a concept here that, you know, uh, that Elon is standing behind and, uh, you know, freedom of speech. Uh, and I think, of course, is big. The reason why he's big on decentralization is because decentralization brings freedom to the people. And I think freedom is what really motivates him here. And actually, freedom is what ledger is all about like we want to empower people with tools so they can you know reclaim their self sovereignty like own you know what they want to own whether it's a uh, bitcoin whether it's uh, an nft or everything else that's going to go on blockchain in the future so i'm very aligned with uh, with Elon Musk move and you know he roots for freedom and so are we so go Elon uh,
2: you don't normally hear the words beautiful and troll together how can a troll be beautiful
8: Oh, because I think he's, a, he's an internet genius. Like every time he posts something, he breaks the internet. So, but I think sometimes it's trolling. I mean, we were talking about like him being a promoter of crypto. I don't think you know being a promoter of Doge is you know the best that you can do for crypto. But Elon is doing it, so you know I, I don't agree with everything that Elon Musk says. But I have to say that, you know, he's the uh, he's an Internet magician. So, you know, you have to respect that.
4: You know, uh, this idea of security and, and some of these big names, Elon Musk, when it comes to potential crypto and Twitter and Jack Dorsey getting deeper into crypto. At the end of the day, with crypto being down, even among one of the biggest conferences that surround Bitcoin, what are you seeing in terms of institutional interest, and what's stopping people at the end of the day really from getting in?
8: Well, nothing is stopping people to get in now. I like, think I think people need to understand that with crypto, we sort of we just got into like a, a thirty years, uh, you know, uh, circle of like going up. Like you know, like there is massive adoption uh, anywhere anywhere you look at. You know, whether it's cryptocurrencies, NFTs. I think the the next uh, big thing will be play to earn, um, and so you know everyone is coming in from uh, from. Uh, A retail perspective, but also from an institutional perspective. You know, I've been in this game since 2014, and I can tell you that now no one is doubting the, uh, you know, crypto or Bitcoin or, you know, blockchain technologies. Like, everyone wants in, and so you have uh, an amazing phenomenon because it's worldwide, too. Like, everyone is getting in from everywhere in the world, and this is actually very unique. This is the first time that Everyone, everywhere in the world is getting in into the same technology rail. And so this is why you see so much momentum going, uh, happening right now.
2: Pascal Gaultier, Ledger CEO and chair, will let you get back to Bitcoin Miami. Thank you for taking the time, along with Bloomberg's Chanali Basik. back online the iphone maker announcing it'll hold its annual worldwide developers conference virtually for the third year in a row a sign that major tech events are still a ways off from returning to pre-pandemic norms i want to bring in our mark german who of course covers apple for us so look mark apple has been leaning a push to come back to its office for its own employees why hold this event virtually again
9: Yeah, they really had no choice but to do this virtually, right? We don't know what's going to happen with COVID over the next two months or so. It's not predictable. These shows take several months to to put together, right? They either have to put three months of time into developing an in-person version or three months' time developing an online version. And it's really hard to put, you know, all your effort and if you're splitting it across both so they had to pick one direction and the in-person direction is just not safe at this point who knows what could happen with covid one week or the day of the event where they have to cancel the whole thing apple was in a position where it really couldn't afford to become stuck so it had to go online only and the compromise is they're going to allow a small number of people in the Steve Jobs Theater at the Apple Park headquarters to watch the pre-recorded video live
2: So what are we expecting the substance of this developers conference will be? What will be the big announcements?
9: I think this is going to be a fairly strong uh, Apple developer conference, right? They are scheduled to release new Macs, including a new version of the MacBook Air around the middle of the year, so perhaps they use WWDC to introduce that laptop. That's going to be a very big deal. Obviously, there's lots of fans of the MacBook Air, and this will be the biggest redesign in the product's history, and we'll have a new version of the Apple in-house chips. Uh, We're also looking for major fitness tracking and health upgrades on the Apple Watch, as well as a pretty big update to iOS, iOS 16, though I'm not expecting a full-blown redesign. And additionally, there could be some conversation about AR and VR applications ahead of a larger reveal of its mixed reality hardware for its headset later this year or next year.
2: You've been reporting on Apple's uh, return to the office and pushback from some employees. How is this evolving? I mean, and and could you see Apple losing talent as a result when, you know, other companies are also pushing uh, for people to come back?
9: Yeah, so next week, that's the deadline to start returning to the office if you're an Apple corporate employee, right? So they'll start one day a week in the office on April 11th, right, next Monday, and then a few weeks after that, it'll be two days a week. And by the end of May, or a week before the end of May, they're going to expect employees in the office Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. Now, I would say there's probably at least a few hundred employees who are leaving Apple over uh, that policy, but, you know, we should note that Apple has over 160,000 employees. Obviously, most of that is retail, but still, several tens of thousands of employees. So this is a small number of people altogether. The interesting thing to me, if if, uh, anyone wants to read my Business Week story on this, is that Apple put out a nine minute advertisement touting how great its own products, software and services are for remote work. Yet it's requiring those very people who developed those products to work from the office. So a little bit of irony right there.
2: Irony indeed. Mark Gurman, as always, great to have you. Thanks. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We are back tomorrow. We're going to be joined by Jamie Yannone, president and CEO of eBay. And don't forget to check out our podcast. Find it anywhere you get your podcast. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is
4: Bloomberg.